You're listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer with Gina Militia, one of Australia's leading portrait celebrity and lifestyle photographers. With over 25 years' experience in the industry, Gina is a pro photographer who regularly travels the world shooting for some of the country's top magazines and advertisers. She is author of four best-selling books on photography, runs workshops and mentors aspiring photographers all around the world. In conversation with journalist, interviewer and budding amateur photographer Valerie Koo, Gina reveals what it takes to build a successful photography business, provides a sneak peek into life behind the lens and talks about her tips and techniques to get the perfect shot. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 253 of So You Want to Be a Photographer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Gina Militia. How are you, Gina? I'm great, Val. I've just come back from a massive yes. three-hour walk. Oh. And uh, it was... Uh, the... Where'd you go? <laughs> just you know there's by... these things, they're called cars. Yeah, I know, but I love a walk because it, it like you, mm-hmm. you can disconnect and just relax and I think it's so important for creativity and the highlight... Did you take your dog, I Gary? Did. Gary came and he made it all. So it's one and a half hours there, one and a half hours back. And um, the last little stretch, or halfway at the halfway mark, as I was going through these beautiful orchards, uh, mm. there was about eight, eight or nine kangaroos that just oh, all goodness. went. They're like, "Hey, guys, look over here!" And they just all bounded over. <laughs> they came so close, and like the the more curious ones were at the front, and the braver ones, including the big, obviously the big daddy of the group, and then and then they're all lined up behind, and then. <laughs> They're kind of like peering over each other. It was like a crowd trying to see some mm-hmm. sort of spe- – and it was us. We were the spectacle. No mm-hmm. fence. They were so close. It was the coolest oh. sight. And then en masse, one of them said, all right, nothing to see here, and then they just all bounded away. <laughs> and it was so beautiful except for the big guy, mm-hmm. the big guy who okay. was probably seven foot tall, and we yes. had a stare off. Okay, you would have a stare we off. We had a stare you? off Even and with the then kangaroo. I'm like, okay, who's going to break first, big boy? And then you. and then of course I started remembering, oh yeah, these guys they don't muck around. Can kill you. Yes, and so at that point I got nervous. He sensed my fear. He just gave a little, yeah, I know. I won. And then he bounded away. He's like, oh "I won." God. And I'm like, "No, no, you did. You totally won that, Mr. Big Roo." <laughs> Oh, my God. Can I just say that um, based on the last few episodes, because there was a mention of kangaroos a couple of episodes ago, listeners from around the world are going to think that kangaroos are a really common occurrence. And let me just assure you that, in fact, they're not. It's just that Gina kind of lives on the outskirts and where there are kangaroos. Mm. I have not seen a kangaroo for six years at least. And that's when I was living in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So um, if you are living in the city, a capital city, kangaroos do not bound around the streets, just for our overseas listeners no. in case you're wondering. Just thought I'd clarify that. But thank you. I'm glad you had a interesting encounter with a bunch of kangaroos. It was. And um, I'm surprised you didn't, you know, stare him down and say, are you talking to me? Oh, I had that I had that dialogue going in my head. You know, that was my son's first sentence, wasn't it? <laughs> you talking yes. to me? Best line yes. ever. 
Oh, my goodness. All right. Apart from seeing kangaroos, what else has been happening? So just been working on uh, shoots, getting out there and trying, you know, those um, heat packs that you buy uh, and you put them in, you shake them up, put them in your pocket, keep you warm. Best things ever when Mm -hmm. you're shooting outside. Cool. Yeah. Loving those. What about you, Val? What have you been up to? What have I been up to? Do you know what? For the first time since I've moved here, so I moved to my house, which is obviously no longer new because I moved here four years ago. Um, Yeah, four years ago. For the first time in four years, I finally tidied my office, my home office, and it looks amazing, I have to say. Wow. Um, I know. It's like I... I played pick up, put down. Yeah. I picked something up and I had the, I couldn't put it down until it went in its right place or the bin or wherever. Yeah. And I don't recognise my office. The cleaners came today. I think they almost they probably went into shock. over in shock. Don't yes. you clean for the cleaners? Are they yes, not allowed in your my, office? Because, yeah, I do that with the cleaners. No, 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 yeah. I do. Oh. But the but the but it had gone, you know, beyond the point of no return. You, there was no point. <laughs> you decluttered, you know, basically. Yeah, yeah, in a big way. Like everything's sorted, everything. It's, it's amazing. But it's the best because when you've got a clean space, you can actually I th- oh. you think better and there's not you – because the, you're constantly better. seeing these things out of the corner of your eye. And I know you do mm. pick up, put down, but I've got <laughs> another one that I um, – another sort of productivity tidy hack that I got from okay. – uh, I think it was the Happier podcast – but it's basically, mm-hmm. I think they called it an hour of power. So you know how you've got all those like little jobs that just annoy you. Like you look out your window yeah. and you go, all right, that screen's fallen down. I need to fix that. Yes. There's a light globe yes. that needs to be replaced. There's this. And there's a whole list of them. So what you do is you go, right, for the next hour, I'm going to do all those little jobs. And it's just one hour out of your day. And, and so I saved mm. them all up. And I yesterday I did that. I went around and I did all those things that have just been annoying me for ages. Yes. And but it takes more than an hour. It doesn't. It, took, it actually took mm. about 30 minutes for me to do everything. Oh my God. 30 minutes and I got them all done. Just these things that you just, you because you, in your head you make out that it's bigger than it is and it could be, yeah, you know, yeah. like, and, and you can apply that to your photography. Uh, it's like the, the minute you get up, get in front of your computer if you're not shooting that day and you've got an email that's just been bothering you that you need to be sending, then it might be, um, you know, asking someone if they would, uh, you know, want to work with you or, one, you know, one mm. of the, just do it. Just get up there and go, mm. right, I'm doing it. And 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 you might be a list of, it, it might be bookkeeping for some uh, people. Definitely, I, I hate doing all of those sorts of things. So I save them up and it's all those emails that you got to send back to your accountant and things like that. I just do them in a batch, get them out of the way. Invoicing is the same. Things like that that you just put off. You just go, all right, for the mm. next. And, and, and you can even bring it back to like, I'm going to do this for 10 minutes because I hate it so much. I'm just going to invest the next 10 minutes and then I can leave it. And what happens is once you get into it, you find, all right, I'm starting now. I may as well finish. And you, you'll find that you end up doing it for half an hour or an hour. So mm. so true. Good hack. So true. Anyway, so we've been productive. That's yes. good. You've been looking at kangaroos and I've been tidying my office. The exciting lives we lead. Oh, so glamorous.
What else you got to share with us, Gina? I had uh, in the Facebook group, so that's the So You Want to Be a Photographer Facebook community, fantastic community of photographers from all over the world. Not only do they share their amazing photos and tips and everything, but occasionally there are some very funny posts. And one that came from uh, Sue Lennon, who posted uh, a great little uh, visual, sleeping positions of different professionals. <laughs> and uh, so you've got uh, do you want to describe it <laughs> okay so we have an image of um, a person with their head on a pillow and so the teacher has uh, has is on their back and their head the back of their head is on the pillow and their arms almost like in a surrender style <laughs> I surrender and the lawyer is sleeping on um, the person it has the head on the pillow on its on his side and he's sleeping on his side the engineer is sleeping on face down his front <laughs> yep and the photographer is not there at all he's not sleeping <laughs> the photographer doesn't seem. sleep basically so yes. <laughs> I just thought it was a very cute little visual I actually sleep like the engineer so perhaps I am an engineer yeah, right, maybe, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll put the image in the show notes, which you can find at ginamilitia.com. That's M-I-L-I-C-I-A. You've also been busy with the gold community, haven't you, Gina? Yeah, so this week I've been working on advanced lighting techniques for headshots. So that's where you can work on how to not only control your main light but manipulate the fill light, and that can be applied to how you shoot uh, portraits using uh, daylight, so outside, so manipulating your fill light with a, a key light and also uh, advanced lighting techniques in the studio where you can work with up to four lights and you can completely change uh, the, the shape and look of someone's face uh, by just how many uh, uh, lights you use. So that's at the more advanced end of the spectrum. But of course, we have photographers at all different levels in the goal community. So I've also done uh, one on how to do a basic edit in Lightroom. So when you, you know, um, bringing your image there, what would be the most basic edit you could do, which still takes that image to the next level. So uh, a couple of different tutorials that are covered there this week in the Gold community, Val. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of headshots, though, one of the pieces of advice that you give is to get like a styrofoam head or just a head as a model to test, to you know, test your lighting on, to do um, test shots before you put a real human in there. And I loved the picture that someone posted in the Facebook group of all of these heads that she actually, this is a great idea that she gets from a hairdresser. Yeah, yeah, because the ones from the hairdresser have Fantastic. real hair. And then I noticed there was a comment where someone said, is your, is your model losing their hair? Because I'm finding that mine was really cute. And what do you do? How do you stop them from losing their hair? But I think her, that the person that posted was taking hers to the salon to get the hair washed yes, and restyled. Yes. Cool. Next cool. level. <laughs> okay. So, of course, that is in the Facebook group um, for the listener community. If you want to check that out, go to search for So You Want to Be a Photographer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. And if you want more mentoring directly from Gina, find out more about the Gold community by having a listen to this. 
Hey guys, are you an enthusiast or pro photographer who wants to take their photography to the next level? I'd love the opportunity to work with you and I want to introduce you to my Gold Community. The Gold Community is an educational resource where members get access to photography courses and regular tutorials. There's over 200 tutorials with more being added each month. In these tutorials, I take you on set with me and I share my thought process behind scouting locations, posing and directing models, lighting and post-production. You get to see the entire shoot from start to finish, from surface in Sri Lanka using a single speed light to character portraits on the streets of Sicily using daylight or high-end studio shoots where I share all my posing and connecting hacks. There's also regular photo critiques, monthly live calls and heaps more. As a member, you'll also have access to my exclusive Facebook group and online forum where you'll be able to connect with other members from all over the world. So what are you waiting for? Join the Gold community today and start taking the kind of photos you've always dreamed of. You can check it out at ginamilitia.com. All right, let's move on to this week's topic, which is how to shoot amazing black and white landscape photos with our guest, Jack Curran. Now, I have to say I'm so excited for this interview because when I checked out Jack's shots, his Instagram, his website, oh, my goodness, it, I my jaw mm. hit the floor. His stuff is amazing. It's dramatic. It's moody. It's emotion-filled. It's beautiful. It's stunning. It is just clearly the work of a master and um, even though I'm not uh, a big landscape photographer myself I love looking at landscape photography and I just think and it's largely because I don't go out into the great outdoors <laughs> very much as you may know <laughs> you know <laughs> but I appreciate it and you know whether you're looking at Ansel Adams or whether you're looking at more contemporary photographers, really good landscape photography can absolutely take your breath away. And definitely Jack's work is absolutely fantastic. So tell us a bit about Jack. Yeah, so Jack's been shooting these amazing landscapes for uh, over 40 years now. So he really is a master of his craft. He's a multi-award winning photographer and he's also been ranked as one of the top 10 landscape photographers in the world. Uh, and you, you just have a look, check out his work and, and you'll see uh, how beautiful it is. He generously in this interview shares some great tips and insights for photographers of all levels and you you will hear in this interview the moment when the greatest aha moment I've ever had from a landscape photographer. He explained lighting to me in such a way that I finally just got it. It was like my head was about to explode. For uh, landscapes. Yeah, for landscape photography. And um, it, it just changed everything for me. So I, I think uh, you guys are going to get a lot out of this uh, interview and really enjoy it. Jack Curran, welcome to the show. How are you going? Hey, Gina. It's going great, and I'm uh, really excited to be here. All right. So before uh, we get into it, I always like to ask my guests, where in the world are they? So where in the world are you, Jack? I am right in the middle of uh, the United States in St. Louis, Missouri. It's kind of like my launching pad. 
Fantastic. That's a cool place. I drove through and I kind of wished I had more time to stop and check it out. Um, great location. To really? Live. So you're right in the centre, so it's pretty easy. I can see that you uh, get around a fair bit, so it's a good place to be. Yeah, I can, I can launch here and it's half the distance of the United States to basically either coast, south, north. I mean, it's perfect. Yeah. So uh, your, your beautiful landscape images are amazing. Uh, kind of, uh, they've got a real cinematic feel. Uh, it's, it's something that I personally don't do, but I do have a lot of respect for landscape photographers. And uh, you really um, uh, shoot these beautiful, evocative, like I said, cinematic style images and mostly in black and white. So, and it, is it true you've been doing this for 40 years now? Yeah, I, I started, I got a camera in 1978. Wow. Um, and, and so that's, that's just about 40, 41 years ago. And I took my first, my freshman year in college when I was 19, I uh, took an intro to black and white photography course. And really unbeknownst to me at the time, there was this National Geographic photographer who was teaching the course and he had retired and he was just kind of hiding at this small, um, you know, uh, independent college. And so I took this course and I started developing, you know, images in black and white. And I was like, wow, but this guy pushed me really hard. Wow, you know. you're so lucky to to have that, and you 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 probably didn't realize at the time what what you were getting until later. I, right? I I didn't, but when I saw that first print come up in the developer, I'm like, okay, I know I can do this for the rest of my life because there's so many possibilities. You know, I mean, you you could just keep pointing anywhere. <laughs> it's addictive, isn't it, to see I I. I kind of wish that everyone that was starting in photography had the opportunity to uh, shoot with film and develop something in a darkroom just to have that experience of watching an image slowly come up in the in the developer it's 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 such a beautiful experience yeah and I I think that experience is something that you learn you learn a lot about controlling light Mm. because you're, you're going directly from film to an enlarger to a printed piece and you have to manage that process all the way and so now you start to really respect the first part when you're exposing how to manage that light and then the second part developing how to manage that light then taking it in a larger and learning how to manage that light and all the variables in printing and then developing again so it's it's uh it's a great process for learning yeah and I just want to go back a few years now, and and so you you kind of stumbled into the world of, of photography uh, on a whim, I guess. But that connection with the landscape uh, happened a lot earlier. Uh, I want to ask you, as as a kid growing up, what what kind of a kid were you, and uh, how did that <laughs> affect your? How did the landscape? Okay. What did that role play role play in your uh, oh. in growing up? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm going to be delicate how I go through this, but um, I would I would consider myself almost an unruly child. You know. Um, it was interesting. I, I, 
I kind of only did what I wanted to do as a child. And my parents were very concerned about me because they thought, you know, either I wasn't going to go anywhere or do anything or be anybody because I, I would constantly be on the move doing different things. You know, I had trouble in school. Um, and, and the interesting thing is that I would, I would get on the honor roll when I wanted to and right. didn't care the rest of the time, hmm. you know. Uh, and, and my mother even took me to get tested as a child to find out if I was okay. Right. And 20 years later, she's like, you know, I forgot, you know, I never wanted to give you the results of that test. I said, why is that? She goes, because you're such a little, well, you know, SH <laughs> number numerals <laughs> T that um, that uh, you went all the way from 100% to zero. And the zero you just refused to do. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah, that sounds like me. <laughs> um so, so after that, after a period of time, when I was 16, my parents decided, you know, we're going we're gonna to send you out to Outward Bound, which was a, a leadership course and really a place where, you know, you spent 30 days in the wilderness hiking. Uh, I canoed for a month, did rock climbing, um, you know, all kinds of stuff out there with nine other guys from around the country whose parents thought they were in a similar situation. And we were out in the wilderness forever, for 30 days at least, with, you know, limited food. Uh, no, you know, you, you did a solo for three days and you got three matches and a book to write in. And that was it. How was you that? Know, no food. How, so you, you, living, you grew up in the city, right? So the city kid gets sent out to the wilderness. What was that first night? like and what were you thinking like how, how, how can I so, get away or yeah absolutely I mean I was like what the heck did my parents just send me to because we we I, it was like my first time on a plane wow. my we flew into this this town we all got on this bus we drove for three hours in this bus they drop us off in the wilderness at 11 30 at night in a thunderstorm and said get in this canoe well you they scared? took all our they took all our clothes and took us down to like three pairs of underwear and said, here we go. I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> but, you know, it, I was scared. I was unsure. I was unclear about what was going to happen. And I thought, am I doing this for 30 days? And, uh, you know, the first week we just canoed and canoed and canoed and canoed and nobody really talked. <laughs> so, I so think you we didn't were make all any friendships. You were, you're right. And and we, you know, was the food limited? So it sounds like it an episode of Survivor. <laughs> it was all freeze-dried food. There was oh. nothing you know, really baked or cooked. Uh, it wasn't quite as bad as Survivor. They did feed us. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it was very limited. And we canoed 30 miles a day or something. So it was just, it was nuts. Um, but, you know, slowly everybody started coming out of their shells and these, these counselors would talk to us about our lives, what was going on, um, and talk to us about leadership and, you know, where, where is it you want to go and really challenge us. And I, I thought I was a good kid and I thought I had it all figured out. And I realized after about a week or two that I didn't have much of anything figured out, Right. you know, but I became completely attached um, to the outdoors. 
And, you know, being in an environment where you're outside for 30 days and three days by yourself with nobody there, you know, you start to look at nature and the respect that you have for it a whole different way. Yeah, you know? that's, that's interesting. I, I think, I, uh, unfortunately, not a lot of 16-year-olds uh, get to have that experience. And whilst it must have been uh, frightening, you did learn to – do you feel like how, – how quickly did you start to connect uh, with, with your surroundings and, and sort of start to have a sense of uh, what was possible out there? Um, I, I think probably about week two, the middle of week two, I started to really, you know, um, look at the scenery and start paying attention to what was around me. And I, I've always been able to see abstractly in nature. So I, I don't just look at a scene. I, I see shapes and forms and shadows and light. And I've always done that. I mean, I will see a shadow on a wall from a lamp and the, I see the shadow and nobody else cares. Right. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Um, so I have that, that side of my brain. So I started really paying attention to the outdoors and I still started really admiring light and sky and reflections in the water and ripples and just paying attention. That's all. Because there was nothing much else to do. You didn't have the distractions of um, television or Nintendo. You probably didn't even have books or radios or anything no. like that, right? So you just had each other and then you're watching and it, light. And I guess at, at that journal. point, yeah, a journal. And, and then you're waking at first light and I guess going to sleep shortly after sunset, right? Dark. Yeah, exactly. That's it. I mean, we did go into home base and we got to see a bunch of other people for two days where we did the, you know, we were out for a week and then went back into this home base and we did survival training and how to flip your canoe back over. And we saw and ropes courses and we saw all these people for like two or three days out of the whole thing and then back out for like um, a 21 day uh, trip and in the last five days our instructors left us and said find your way home yeah we they were around somewhere we never saw them right we made a lot of bad decisions as a group but you learned to work as a group you couldn't just be an individual anymore you know and so what was so, the dynamics of the group like? Obviously, would, would someone naturally take uh, responsibility <laughs> of being leader and there was followers? How did, how did that look? Yeah, I, I, I think there was a, a consensus that started to take place. You know, there was two or three guys that were probably a little bit more vocal. There was two or three guys that were, you know, hard workers on the paddles. And there was two or three guys that were smart about navigation I mean, so we started putting uh, people into roles and responsibilities, and, and most were respected as equal value. Wow. So you started to um, figure it out that way. Now, we, we all had very distinct personalities. I would say probably four out of the nine guys came from very wealthy families, you know, um, and we sat around and, you know, sang Grateful Dead songs and <laughs> <laughs> while we paddled and and one guy started singing opera, and we about killed him. <laughs> <laughs> We're rock climbing on the side of a cliff, and you got eight guys that are already up, and one guy's halfway up, 
and he can't get up. And there's nine, eight guys looking over the side, coaching him to get up. And he's down there crying his brains out. And you're like, you can make this. Wow. And we don't leave until he makes it, you know. It sounds like an so, amazing experience. How how um, was the Jack, how did the Jack who turned up on day one, how was he different to the Jack that walked out of that um, that wilderness 30 days later? I think really the, the, the one thing, and I, and I still had issues coming out of there. I was not, not totally changed in life. But I think the one thing that I really learned to do is to uh, um, have gratitude, have gratitude for people, places, environments, uh, respect my parents and stuff like that and my siblings uh, because I was very, very self-centered and selfish before I went. And this helped me learn the ability to consider what other people are doing, you know, outside of myself. All right. So um, th- there's still no interest in photography at this point, although you've got a, a newfound respect for uh, nature. Uh, but th- there's a seed that's been planted at, th- at this point. So let- let's fast forward now to um, did you do any photography be- between that time and uh, starting that course at college? I did a smidge and and here's how that happened. My best friend who's been my best friend since I'm four years old. Um, he got a camera when we were 18 in our senior year in high school. And I'm like, so jealous of the fact that he has this 35 millimeter camera that I spent like five months bugging my parents to get me a camera for Christmas. And they finally relented (laughs) and they bought me this $200. I don't know if it was Chinese or whatever it was, but it was called a Calamar camera, and I, it had one lens, and I could barely get film in it, and I started to take some pictures, and I stopped. As soon as I had the camera, I was satisfied that I was done. <laughs> I got what I wanted. Why, you know, I don't need to take pictures now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so how did you start Take what, what was the... Um... I took that silly little camera down to the college with me. Yeah. And I took that course as an elective because I thought it would be an easy A. (laughs) (laughs) And little did I know, uh, I was just walking into something that would kind of change my life. You know, I had no clue. I didn't, you know, I was just like, well, I was kind of fascinated with this at the end of high school. I'll take this course, you know, and the guy was tough. And he actually, you know, once the semester was over, we continued to go out on little trips and shoot together and all kinds of stuff. Because as much as I pushed, he pushed me, I was in there asking him questions about this. And he kept sending me on these little assignments. Look up this person. Look up this person. Um, And while he was kind of the National Geographic guy, I took it right to landscape. Right. And so... At, at what point are you starting to think this could be something here or was it still just like I just need to get an A and move on? At what point did you start to think I could do something with this? So I probably my my sophomore year because I actually stayed at that school only for a year and a half and then I left and I came back and I and I went to a university here and I took another course in photography from an instructor that I'd read about and that guy pushed me pretty hard and i and i and i really didn't know what i didn't know you know i was not very smart about any of it and so he pushed me pretty hard and i did a 
um, an out-of-class credit that would give me almost six hours if I did this special project. And it was this whole kind of looking at yourself, looking at what you wanted to do with photography, what would you did. And I, I mean, I did this, these series that, you know, really fascinated me and, and it kind of launched me because then I went and got a job, um, at a photo lab, ah. a big commercial photo lab that had a, a photo studio with three shooters in it. It had the lab doing all the work for the commercial photographers and printing, you know, it had 10 rooms with enlargers and enlargers that would print full-size wall murals. I mean, it was a big commercial lab. And what were you doing there? What were your roles at that, at that time? Well, I, I started sweeping the floors Yeah. because they weren't going to trust some young kid to do anything because they didn't know, you know, anything other than I loved photography. And they're like, well, that's not quite good enough. <laughs> <laughs> so... So I started doing what they call making internegs, which is back then you had transparencies and you would expose it to a Kodak negative material. And then that negative material would go into enlargers and you could print on color paper. So like a a transparency is a positive uh, and then you turn that into a negative so it can be printed. Right. So that was your first role. And then. um, Yeah, that was my first role. And so then I started printing and printing large murals. Um, and the whole time I was still doing my black and white, I set up a dark room at home. Right. And as so, you're printing the large murals, are there the senior photographers in there? Are they giving you tips? So we had the studio. That was one thing. And then we had the, the lab technicians and these guys, they were probably, you know, photographers or in, photographer enthusiasts or retired professionals that are now printing. And the other side, there were three commercial shooters that were over there shooting. I worked in the lab side when I started. And these guys were teaching me, you know, really how to print, how to control light. Hmm. But I was doing all that work in color for other people, right? right. Um, and then in the studio, I walked over to that studio every day wanting to go over there and shoot. Right. You know? So I was three years in a lab, got through college. And then I finally begged them enough for a job in the studio. They said, sure, we'll give you a job in the studio as an assistant, but we're going to cut your pay in half. Wow. <laughs> and what sort of stuff yeah. were you doing as what, – what sort of jobs were you assisting on? So when I, I – I assisted for about six months, and it was all tabletop and some lifestyle, but it was mostly tabletop and, and – uh, you know, we did Anheuser-Busch with beer commercials. We did Ross and Purina, which did a lot of food uh, for pets and stuff like that. We did food photography, um, and we did a small amount of fashion. Right. And, and so I assisted for about six months, and what I would do is I would stay there. After my day of assisting these three guys, I would stay there. And then I would shoot my own portfolio at night with the 8x10 cameras and the 4x5 cameras. And then I'd walk over to the lab I used to work in and I would process all the film. <laughs> and, uh, and then I would go back to the studio. I'd lay it out on a light table and I'd go to sleep on a couch. And these guys would come in and they would critique my work. Fantastic. Yeah, so I had three different critiques. You know, guys critiquing this every day, plus the the sales rep or the, you know, studio rep, and they would just beat it up. 
How did you take that? Because I think that having uh, good constructive critique is probably the best way that you can grow as a photographer. But how how did how did you take that? Would did you take it on board and listen to them, or did you uh, not? A little, a little bit. A little I'm a bit. very competitive person, right? So, so when they when they would tell me something, I'm like, I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> you know? I'll show you. So then I would go spend another three nights shooting my brains out and I'd just walk in and not say a word and I'd have new work on the light table, you know, <laughs> like it was nothing, but I really worked my ass off. <laughs> right. So it's like you had this uh, crash course with uh, mm. all these uh, professionals around you. It sounds like a, an amazing way to learn photography. So this is, you're not doing landscape at this point. You're shooting commercial uh, work. What, what, what happens yep. next? So I, I started doing tabletop and fashion. So I, I shot things for Don Robbie in New York. I went to London and shot some fashion, but all with the same firm. So I was there for a long, long time. Mm. And, and so I was still traveling. I would take three to four weeks a year and head out west to the, to the mountains and take my four by fives. And I would go out there and I would shoot landscape just for me. Right. So I never stopped doing that. I had my dark room at home. I would go out every year um, and I would just do my landscape. And, you know, these guys, you know, they appreciated my landscape. A couple of them went to Brooks Institute and stuff like that when they were younger and had shot landscape. But they were just commercial shooters. They didn't do anything outside the studio. And for me, the landscape was my first love and something I would never going to let go of. So with the just for the newbies listening, uh, can you describe the 4x5 system and maybe what would the equivalent be if you were using uh, uh, a digital camera today to get, to get the same sort of resolution? Sure. Um, you know, the 4x5 system was 4x5 inches. I'm not exactly sure how that converts into well, centimeters. We'll, we'll, yeah, I don't know either. Yeah. But, like, but it, we... <laughs> it is considered a, a large format file or, you know, negative or positive transparency. And it had some wonderful resolving power. So today people think in terms of 35 millimeter, they think in terms of digital being 35 millimeter, and then they consider megapixels and, and things like that. And so for a four by five, you know, your, your range of megapixels is probably around that 50 and up. Yeah. So it's probably 50 megapixels is just at the bottom end of a four by five. And maybe that's um, like a tri-X, which was a higher resolution that had more or higher, um, what they called then ASA, now ISO would be about 400 yeah. and it would have more grain, right? inherent grain because it had to develop a different way and so now you have that 50 megapixel digital camera that's about at the bottom end of a four by five maybe the somewhere between a, a two and a quarter format yep and a four by five and then you would go 100 megapixels to the 150 to maybe 200 or whatever you have for the studio cameras or yep. what people are taking out as the phase cam phase one cameras yep or some of the Hasselblad backs, or some of these other things. So, so that's kind of where that lies. And the four by five system—it's not like you get a roll of four by five. How how does it work? How, yeah. So, so most four by fives are are very simple when you think about it. They have a fixed lens, and there are no zooms. 
They have a copal shutter, which is a manual shutter that usually goes from, you know, one second to 250, 500, not many went to 1,000. And then you have a bellows that extends to the back of the camera, and, and the different lengths of the bellows extension is your your um, focal length of the lens. Right. And that that lens is set up so that it covers a little larger radius area of four by five inches so it has bleed. Yep. And everything in that camera is upside down and backwards, reversed. Mm. So you are putting a dark cloth over your head because there's no, no, you know, screen. It's, yeah. it's, you're in the daylight. You put a dark cloth over your head and you're looking at everything upside down and backwards. Yeah. So you have to, you have to think about how you're composing quite a bit. And you shoot with these sheet film holders where you slide. You usually get two sheets in a holder. So, and it's a very slow, cumbersome, time-consuming process because it's always on a tripod. It's always, you know, a cable release. It's always focusing back and forth with this this bellows and, the, and checking with the, the back of the frame on the ground glass, you know, where is it in focus? You got to check all the corners and, and the camera tilts, it shifts and it, and it goes flat, you know, so you can control perspectives. There's a lot of variables going on, isn't there? Tons of variables, Mm. right? So it takes a little while to learn them all. And then of course you're processing your own film by hand, you know, so there's more variables there. Uh, and that's much to me. It's much like taking a raw file at that point. You have a negative. You process it. You have a raw file. So it's a very slow right? and deliberate process. And also, it's um, when you're shooting with four by five sheet film. Are you how many exposures are you taking? So because it's, it wasn't cheap, uh, a sheet of film. So were you doing? No. Uh, were you bracketing? Were you taking three exposures to cover yourself? Sometimes how, three. Sometimes four. Yeah. Mostly four. Yep. But what I would also do is I would take a Polaroid um, out there in the field with me, and I would take the positive-negative Type 55. And what you could do there is you could you could shoot a Type 55 positive, and you could see the the image. You can check your composition, and you can make sure it's it's added expense. But you yep. can make sure it's it's what you kind of visualized. Yeah. And then you could store that negative side and go back and process it in these chemicals and you could have a secondary negative. Right. But, you know, half the time they had roller marks and chemicals that didn't quite go all the way and it can get really messy. But um, they were great positive negative images to use in the field for visualization. Well, people were using those to make uh, portraits as well. It had a pretty groovy oh, look yeah. as well. So um, Yeah, they yeah. love the border, you know, the little etchy kind of border going around Fantastic. it. Fantastic. Love it. Uh, yeah. I, I and at one it. point I did Polaroid transfers with mm. 8 by 10 onto watercolor paper back in the, yeah. the late 80s. Yeah. Beautiful technique. So, all right. How did starting out doing these landscape shots using this system – um, it obviously slowed you down and um, got you to think a lot about what you were doing because you just can't hack it out when you're shooting um, in, in this way. So it's very slow and deliberate. 
how much planning went in at this point, at this early stage of your career, how much planning went into what it was that you were shooting? Are you just bowling up to a location thinking, here's a pretty mountain range, I'll just turn up at midday and get what I get? Or were you thinking about light where it was and where you, and your framing and all of that? Well, so so I think it's a combination of both. Sometimes there was these elegant little surprises as you drive. You see things that are turning and happening with weather and stuff. And then you got to find a dynamic foreground and, you know, something to, to shoot with because there's – look at those clouds. And then you got to find something interesting to put with them. But other times it's, it's like I know I'm going to go to this mountain range. I would look at topographical maps so I knew the – the density of peaks and valleys, you know, on the on the lines on the on the topo or you know whatever, and and I would know where the sun's coming up and where the sun's going to set. The other thing I would do then is just kind of look at the weather forecast. You know, a lot of times it's you know in the mountains it's it's kind of playing it by ear because you know by late afternoon most of the times in mountains you're going to get clouds. Mm. You know, so you you can pretty much plan on your changing weather depending on where you are and how it's going to flow. You went to the, the south coast of California, you knew there was going to be fog in the morning. If you go to the to inland, you knew it was going to be dry and hot and sunny. If you know, So then you would shoot early morning before sunrise and late afternoon at the sunset you know, to get that long, shadowy light. You know, you'd take a nap at, not at lunchtime. <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing much going on there. So <laughs> no. when you were studying landscape photography, who, who, were some of the, uh, who were some of your influences there? Well, so, you know, I was kind of a fan of, of Brett Weston. He was a lot more dynamic and abstract than some of the other guys. And, and believe it or not, I really like Joseph uh, Sudak out of the Czech Republic. Now, he was not necessarily a landscape photographer, but I, I loved his vision. I loved right. guys like Harry Callahan. Uh, you know, I was somewhat inspired by Ansel Adams. I was never that good at the zone system. Right. You know, because it's just my personal style is a little darker and more moody. And, you know, I like to control the the outcome more than he, he tries to go for a, a very accurate representation. Yeah. You know, and you wanted in his to... tonal range shoot what, what how you felt when you looked at that landscape rather than what it looked like. Yeah, that's true. And and there was another guy who named Bob Colbrenner who lived here in St. Louis for a while and then eventually moved out to Carmel. He had worked in Ansel Adams workshops for like four or six years. Wow. And I I would when I was doing back, you know, in the lab days and you know, before I was shooting the commercial work I would take my black and white prints over to his house and he would just beat me up. I mean, you need to dodge this. You need to burn this. You need to do this. Have you considered this? And I'd be like, crap. <laughs> I'd leave there all depressed, you know. <laughs> I'll never get this. Um, but what was, uh, I'll just tell you a quick story. Because about three years ago, I was out in Carmel and I was, I was um, with Bob. And I had been shooting up and down the coast of California, and I had brought a little portfolio with me that I did of California from two years before. And it was these little folios that I built that were just eight by tens, and there was eight images in there. And I built two of these things, and they were just a portfolio for him and a portfolio for me. And 
they're really elegantly printed with a, a die cut cover and embossed logo and all this stuff, but there's only two of them. And I give him one with this nice write up in the beginning about thanking him for, you know, beating me up when I was a youngster and still being my friend yeah. <laughs> when I, when I told him to go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> and so he opens it up and he's looking at it and he says, gosh, you know, this is, this is incredible. And he goes, this reminds me of the time that Imogen Cunningham was over at Ansel Adams house. And I brought a portfolio in to show it to Imogen and Imogen opened it up, opened up my portfolio and took the first cover leaf off. And she goes, wow, if the rest of this is just like the presentation, I'm going to love it. And then she went through his whole presentation and she just had the nicest things to say to Bob. So for him to say that to me, that's amazing. You know, this thir 35 years later was a yeah, big deal. That is a big deal. You That's know? so cool. Wow. Um, the, so fast forwarding now to um, you're working in with digital now, right? I am. With, and, and so I just want to talk about your approach to landscape photography. And I want to go a little bit woo-woo now, <laughs> if I can, <laughs> about um, – because, like, landscape photography is not my uh, genre and, and, like, I'm a portrait photographer and, and what I love to do when I shoot portraits is the most important thing for me is connecting with the person and uh, trying to capture a personality and a mood and a vibe in that shot. It's not enough for me to just represent the person in front of me as everyone sees them. I like to manipulate sure. the light and really change it and bring something out right. of that image. So, and I can see in your images, there really is, you do somehow capture a personality and a mood and a vibe of the landscapes uh, that you're photographing. What, what goes through your mind when you're, when you're thinking about a location uh, or you're, there, there is a location there that you might, it might be accidental or planned? So uh, like I want to talk about what the percentage is because there's always that something um, happens by accident, but it's not, never an accident, I, I believe. It's always something that's given to mm. you and then you'll, you'll, you'll start to recognize those, um, those sure. beautiful gifts. Uh, so mm -hmm. let, let's just run through the, the thought process and, and how is it, what do you do to connect with the landscape when you're um, taking a portrait? Because I've heard all sorts of different stories about, you know, spending time with the land, paying respect to the land. What's your process? What are you doing? So, so for me, <laughs> first of all, Every time I go on a trip, or especially the ones where I go by myself, I feel like I'm still on that solo three-day experience from Outward Bound. Wow. I am, I am reconnecting my life. I'm settling in a place where I can take all the noise away. I don't have to worry about bills. I don't have to worry about a car breaking down. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm just taking all the noise away, Right. So I will I will pick destinations that I that I think I'm going to have a wonderful experience where I can get rid of all the noise. I will go there and and this is really I think kind of interesting is that I will pack into a place and I will not get my camera out. I have a little 
black and white viewer. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I have a square with a uh, cutout in the middle that is back from my four by five photography days. And I use those things to preview a scene. I'll throw my backpack down and I will walk around for 20 minutes, a half hour, whatever it might be. <clears throat> and I will look. And if I don't see something that catches me right away, I'm just moving on. I am just gone. You know, I may come back because the light's different or I liked something about a scene, but not all the elements were coming together or I couldn't visualize how I could help it get That's, to a different place. I like that. So it, it's, um, you've got a, uh, is it a four by five square bl black sheet of paper with a, uh, a frame cut out of it? So it's like you're holding up a yeah. frame to the landscape. Yeah. And it's not quite paper, but it's it's a piece of a um, what they call Sintra. Right. You know, it's black Sintra with a, a shape cut out of the middle. It is four by five. Yeah. So I have to think about the 35 millimeter trans translation. Right. <laughs> but, um, and I use that and I walk around like, so I was in Patagonia um, three, four weeks ago and I had this guide and I said, I want you to take me to some place. Uh, where I can get a great view of Fitzroy and and the mountain range for sunrise. So we walk up and we go up the steepest darn hills. I've been up uh, down there in a long time. And I mean, it's straight up. And I'm like, did I not tell you about not taking me straight up? And he goes, <laughs> no, you didn't say anything. I'm like, well, I meant to, dang it. <laughs> so straight up. And, you know, after we're sweating through all our clothes and then putting clothes back on because we're freezing, because it's, you know, late fall there, um, we get to the top and it's still dark and we're waiting for the sun to come up and the sun's coming up and the sun's coming up and, and uh, all of a sudden here's the mountain range and the sun's coming up and there's no clouds and I never get my camera out. And he's like, you're not going to take any pictures. I'm like, no, I'm not going to take any pictures. I'm admiring the sunrise, but I don't feel connected to this photograph it's not it's not connecting with me and he just sat there stunned yeah. <laughs> that I was not even going to get my camera out you know I peeked through my little viewer I'm like no it's just blue sky who wants it <laughs> well you know but you didn't always do that did, did you would you like because you've made the effort to get up there you'd think that well while I'm here I might as well take a photo but no no not even with my iPhone Right. And and so I didn't even take anything. And see, most people would do it just to document it. Yes. And I think I think documenting it is one thing, experiencing it and then trying to translate that experience to other people is much harder. Interesting. Right. Um, I like that. Step, you know, though, I like that. I like that you say that, that that um, because we're often and I know I'm guilty of this, you'll get to a location and the camera's up to your face and you're just shooting, shooting, shooting. But are you experiencing in that, that location when you're shooting it? Uh, maybe not really. So, so I like that you say that. I, that's really interesting. Yeah. But now if, if, if the light hits and the clouds are right and it feels good to me, sometimes this is really good. Gina, sometimes I will be in front of a scene, and it's not all the time, but sometimes I will be in front of a scene, and I just start, I'll be the only person there, I will just start laughing out loud. 
because it's so cool and so exciting that I'm just like, ah, there it is. You know? <laughs> and I just start laughing out loud. I'm like, man, I'm kind of an idiot out here by myself. No, I've done that. <laughs> I've done that. Because <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's just, I love it. <laughs> you know, there it is. I got it. And then you look up to the skies and you go, thank you. I do that too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, you so feel you're it. really taking the time um, to be present and in the moment because if you're not, you can't really connect with that, 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 that scene. You're not doing it justice. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this, this same guide took me another day. We went up and we were, again, shooting Fitzroy and there was this waterfall in the front and um, I'm looking at it, looking at it. The sun's coming up. There's no clouds. I'm like, yeah, it's just it's not doing it for me. So I didn't shoot that. We left and we walk in by this lake and he goes, here's a perfect reflection. Are you going to take a reflection of Fitzroy in the lake? And I'm like, no, no. And he says to me, he goes, no, you don't understand. I've been guiding up here for seven years and I have never seen a reflection in this lake. It has always been so windy. There's never been a reflection. I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. I'm probably still never going to show it to anybody, but I will document that. Right. <laughs> because I guess it was something unusual. But it didn't appeal to you. Even it didn't appeal it, to me at yeah, all. Right. It wasn't your thing. Made him happy because yeah. he was, uh, here we go again, another trip, and I can't find this guy a good shot. <laughs> so when you're, when you're in that process of uh, pre, uh, like scouting that location, are you, in your mind, are you pre-visualizing how you want that image to look as a print? Okay. Uh, everybody always asks me that, especially as a black and white landscape photographer and what, what Ansel Adams and all these guys have done talking about pre-visualization. Pre -visualization. And, and I think about it somewhat that way, but not completely. I think about my work as, as visualization and, visual, and, and visualization. So I have kind of the art and the craft right? So I kind of consider the vision as the art. When I'm looking at a scene, I can have the vision to see and kind of think about it. But unless I can put the craft, and that's the visualization part of me, where to me, I can't completely visualize what I'm going to do, right? right. I, I kind of know 70, 80%. But then I find these little mysterious things when I'm in there working in, say, Lightroom. Right. Um, and that, to me, is bringing the visualization and the craft of it to the crescendo. That's where the two come together, right? right. So I, I'm just not that – I'm good at visualizing or, or having a vision for what I can do because I know my craft. Right. And I can think about 80% of it, but I always discover something when I start working on a file and and then it's like now I'm, I'm this is what I thought I'm I'm 80 90% there, but now I'm like boom. You know, um I'm really going to work with the light. This light might not have been there. Um but I know what I think it should have been. 
Right, so you're bringing down highlights, getting more detail in your shadows and, or adding contrast and things yeah. like that in post-production. Yeah, and, and so when I'm standing there, one thing I probably could have mentioned earlier when I'm walking around looking at these things, what I think about a lot is I think about transitions and flow. And what I mean by that is I look at scenes and I look for you know, dark, light, dark, light, dark, light. And it might transition from top to bottom, front to back, right? right? So it might have a dark foreground, then my subject is lit, then it's, then it's dark behind it, and then it gives me a dark sky, and then there's these bright white clouds, and then a dark, you know, um, blue sky that I turn black behind it. So I, I have these transitions, right? And sometimes you can think about it as the flow of light too. So you know, if I do desert scenes, you can really see the flow of light going left, right, left, right, and then the subject matter going left, right, left, right, and then front to back, up to down. So I think about flow of the light and transitions of the light. Right. All right, that's interesting. So when? Uh, all right. So for the for the listeners and and maybe some some people who are new to landscape photography have you got a like uh, a system that you can share uh, uh, for the newbies um, when you get to a location or what happens like how do you plan a shoot and then when you get there what are you doing and then um, maybe some uh, quick tips on uh, some post-production so um, how much are you using what are you using tools to uh, work out where the light is, how, how far out are you planning some shoots, uh, and then... Well, some shoots, like if, uh, you know, like I said, I recently came back from Patagonia, and I had um, most every day kind of planned, right? So I knew where I was going to be two hours before sunrise. I knew what the light was going to do. I did not know what, you know, the, the um, sunrise was going to look like, obviously, but I, I knew where the light was coming across the mountains. So I will be in there. I will, I will unpack my, or throw my bag down. I will start pre-visualizing or visualizing um, the scene. Then I will go in and start thinking about the vision for the shot. Now, if the light does this, it's, I could do this, this, and this. Mm. Um, I could think about it as, you know, what, what these clouds present? Are they soft little bubbly clouds um, or are they long lenticular clouds? And then I can decide, well, you know, a short exposure is really going to look dynamic with this. Um, maybe freeze water, maybe freeze something that's moving. And then if not, I might think, well, if I do a long exposure, if it's going to streak, is it going to add depth? Is it going to really enhance the shot? Where is it going to you know, be giving me the light. And then I will get my cameras out. I will start setting up and I will have two or three different things um, set up. I, I almost always shoot on ISO 100. Right. Um, when I do my, my, most of my exposures are on a tripod. Yeah. Um, I have a remote cable. I, for me, I have a mirror. I have the Canon 5D uh, SR and I have the mirror locked up. And I'll do, you know, a quarter to a half second delay on the mirror so there's no movement. Yeah. Um, I have a, you know, I have the ball head and I, I, and then a set of neutral density filters and, and three lenses and that's it. Right. What, is there a preferred it's, lens? Um, I use, I use the 17 to 35 mm. and the 24 to 105 and the 100 to 400 so I cover the whole range. Right. And, and is there... 
When you're doing something like a mountain range, is there a preferred position of the sun to, to bring out the detail? Do you like the sun to go across the mountain range? Do you like it yeah. behind? What's your preference there? Well, so it, it depends, but probably 70, 80% of the time, side light is the best. Right. So it's like shooting you know? a, um, a architecture. You want the, the light sort of um, grading across the facade of the mountain so you get all that texture. Yeah, that's right. Because front light just fills everything up and it's, it's very, flat. very bland. It's yeah. flat. Backlight, you know, is the exact opposite. But it can be interesting if you're doing something with clouds and sun. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've shot directly into the sun a few times, not very much. Side light or just, a, you know, coming around where it's like three quarters is sometimes very nice. Um, maybe not quite, you know, full side is a little too harsh. You're not quite filling in enough, but three quarters is really nice. That's in, it. So as you're explaining this to me, I'm visualizing actually a face <laughs> and I'm thinking yeah, in, re, thing. in, re, in, in relation to portrait lighting. So when you say three quarter side, that's how I light my portraits. Uh, yeah. and it gives you, and because, and the difference, and when you say, um, you know, complete side lighting that's like split lighting so you'll get half yeah. your image uh your correctly exposed right. and then the other half it goes to black which is not ideal because you lose a lot of detail but when you bring the sun around to that three-quarter point and depending mm -hmm. on the on the how high it is in the sky you, yeah. get, you can light your mountain range with rembrandt lighting that's what it is exactly and here's the added added benefit right so if you have clouds that are behind the mountain range. Now it's like it's like taking something and putting it behind your model that gives you depth from front to back. Yeah, yeah. Right? And the light is hitting those generally. Like sometimes in portraiture, you might, you know, put another light back on a canvas from the low left, the opposite of your three quarters in the front. Well, I kind of think about that same way in landscape. So, you know, you know, where's the depth coming from my backlight? And then where's the three-quarter front? So I'm looking the clouds to kind of create that depth where, you know, in the studio you would pop a light on a canvas or a wall or something to create the separation. That's amazing, Jack. That's the first time someone's explained <laughs> lighting a landscape to me in a way that I understood. It's just all made sense to me. Right now the penny dropped. I think you could hear it. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm going to go and photograph a mountain range now and use portrait lighting. Yeah. But that's I don't know so where you're going to put your lights. I really don't know where you're going to no, put your no, lights. I know, but that's so, so interesting. Um, and then yeah. if you're wanting to have a figure in that, in that, um, landscape, I could just match the light in the background, my light on the person, and I'm going to get a, a great looking shot all the way through. Fantastic. I love yeah, that. You, I love that. You match your light. You're just hunky dory, you know, with the ambient exposure for the rest. Yeah. Because the mistake I've always made, uh, when I've done, uh, landscape, the, 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 the sun's always behind the mountain and the, and there's only so much you can do with that. Cause you're always getting these, um, white hot skies that, you know, and right. you can either, uh, and the thing that, that that's happened a lot lately is like, you can do multiple exposures and then blend the whole thing. It's like a composite, but there's a disconnect, Jack, yeah. isn't there? Do you find right. that? You, do you do any composites when yeah. you're doing your landscape so, images? I, I personally don't. Now, yeah. 
Um, for that and, reason, and I don't, is, it, is that is you that know, why? I, don't, I I I like to try and represent what's actually there the yeah. best I can. So I don't do any f- really focus stacking or stitching or mm. or anything like that. You know, I'm I'm kind of traditional that way. I don't mind any of it. I think if it, you know, effectively communicates a story that's very compelling, yeah, have at it. Just be straightforward and honest about how it's done, Mm. right? That's the only thing I care about. You know, when I see some stuff on Instagram and I can't tell, you know, how that condor got in that shot, but it, you know, I'm like, okay. (laughs) Yeah, or... The Milky Way is in 400 shots with a different background, but the Milky Way is the same in each one. I, you know, I can kind of figure that stuff out. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> so interesting. All right, yeah, so you, you've, so, you've got yeah, you've got your light uh, set up and and um, you've you've lit your frame. What uh, what are you thinking in terms of uh, composition wise and uh, when will you shoot low and when will you shoot high? What is there? Is there a preferred angle that you like to shoot from when you're shooting wide, and uh, how does that differ when you're shooting long? So if 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 folks go to my my website and they look at my portfolios, you'll see that I don't do a ton of wide angle work, even though I'm a landscape shooter. I am a I'm a very strong. Um, shooter in that mid range, you know, anywhere from 50 to, you know, 200 to 50 and then sometimes farther and sometimes shorter, just depending. But the bulk of my work is, is kind of in that mid range because I like to go in and abstract details, right? The wide expanse thing. And then I, you know, there's a, there's a whole school of photographers out there shooting a lot of beautiful color work where they put all these things in the foreground and then the mountain ranges in the background. That that's not me. Um, you know, I just have never shot like that. I always had this, you know, mid range view of the world. Um, but, but so, so I really love that approach and you know, I, I, I can't really vision anything else. Right. Fair enough. That's your way of seeing, and I and I can see that. And you, so so when you're shooting a little bit longer, you're bringing everything forward. It sort of um, yeah. brings everything in, into the into the eye. So all right. So you preferred to to shoot around that mid range. And what about what's your thinking behind where the camera should be? Whether you're shooting low or a little bit higher or mid range. What's the thought process there? So, so I am because, because most of my landscapes, um, are in that mid range. Um, you don't really go down very low, right? Um, I try and keep perspectives pretty true to the subject matter I'm shooting. So if I go low and I force the perspective up, um, unless I'm trying to get people to look up, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So for me, I level, with most of my subjects is, is pretty consistent with where somebody would come and stand and actually see it. So your eye level is what you're shooting at. So you bring the tripod yeah. up to your eye level. So you would be what you're six foot tall that you'd have your tripod at like five. I'm not ten. quite six feet, but I'm I love just guess, that. Guessing. All right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I didn't want to rip you off height wise, you know? Um, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, but the other thing is, is that if I'm trying to, get a reflection, you're naturally going to go lower because yep. reflections get more intense the lower you go, Yeah. right? So the closer you can get your lens to the water, the better. Yeah. 
I was so, down um, a couple years ago, and I shot a, a a reflection, and I was with a couple friends, and they're like, "You're insane." I'm like, "You guys don't see what I see." And then when I when I sent this to them later, they're like, "Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, we missed that. We didn't believe you." <laughs> <laughs> Right, so, so eye level, uh, mostly, unless it's a, a reflection, you'll you'll drop down to almost ground level, I guess. Uh, and then, composition-wise, what's your thought process there? Because I, I see, because you're shooting that mid-range, you've kind of got everything uh, almost nicely centered. What, what's what's your thinking process there? Yeah, so I let I let nature kind of compose for me, mm. right? And, and I think that it happens pretty naturally. <clears throat> There's obvious things that you can do, but I'm not, a, not afraid to break the rules. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm not afraid to break the rules because, you know, I have shot directly into the sun with a, with a tree cutting the middle of the frame in half. And that doesn't bother me a bit. And that's completely something that, you know, not many people are going to take it a horizontal frame, cut it from top to bottom in half with a tree and expect people to really enjoy it. Right. Um, so, but, but nature tends to, when you're out there shooting, like say the more, uh, broad expansive landscapes, the sky and your subject matter almost naturally fall into the thirds, yep. you know, unless you have a horizon line, um, with something that's breaking up into the top. That's pretty, pretty interesting. You could push it off center. I, I have this this shot of these clouds, and there's this almost mushroom effect of a cloud going up from the ocean, uh, from the Gulf, and there's a series of clouds that are really billowing to the left, and then the mushroom goes up in the center. But what I did is I shifted everything a little left, and that that whole mushroom cloud going up is slightly off center, but you have the balance of the kind of circular clouds down low going on, but then a horizon line that's well below the bottom third. And, and so there's tension in that, right? And so what I look for is trying to create as much tension as I can between what's the subject matter in the top, what's the subject matter in the bottom. If there's a storm cloud that's really intense, I don't need a lot of content in the bottom unless it's like soft sand dunes with a storm cloud above the top. So the real story is about the clouds, you know, at the top, but I have this elegant foreground. So it, it's how I want to tell the story. You know, you let the clouds and the nature kind of tell it for you, and you just take the strongest element and make sure that that is speaking, you know, more powerfully in the frame. Right. Beautiful. So, all right, so... You're allowing pretty much nature will help you uh, compose that image. And then you talk about the weight of the image. And is that kind of an intuitive thing? It's like you'll look at it and how it it, it feels to you. So you, you, you don't want the image to be top heavy or bottom heavy or side heavy. Is that right? You kind of want it to balance out. Yeah, you do. You absolutely do. And and one of the reasons that, that I use a lens that has a variable focus length is because I can go in and out and I can scan different options very quickly and figure out that balance very quickly. A fixed lens, I gotta go, I gotta walk in and out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that's, that's a little bit more challenging. All right, and 
So the majority of your images, I'm, I'm struggling to find a color image on your site. It's black and white. Why black and white? You won't what find is, one. <laughs> what is it about black and white that, that you love? Why? why? I, I think immediately it's an abstract, right? So I've, I've, I've left what the eye naturally sees. Mm. To me, it's, it's, a, it's a process that, that helps me. Um, and, and maybe this goes back to when I was younger, I, I look at a lot of shadows and lights and, and what I naturally do is if, if you were to take any of these and you can see some of these on like YouTube, I, I have some Lightroom yep. things that are just free that people can see and you will look at the raw file and you go, well, there isn't very much color in that to start with. Right. So I pursue things that are almost black and white already. Now, some of the nighttime, you know, early morning stuff, there might be a little color in the clouds, but, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I've always just loved it. And I think that has to do with being able to manipulate it and developing trays and how I've, I've come to see the world. Yeah. So are you seeing in black and white? I do. I, you, I see, I see in black and white. I have for probably the last you know, 25 years yeah. really well. Uh, the last 10 years even better, and, and maybe at some point I'm going to figure it out. Right. I love that you say that. At some point I might figure it out. You're still learning. 40 years. Oh, my in. gosh. Yeah. Every day. Every day. And I'm, and I'm not opposed to, to looking at different options. The, the tools I use now in Lightroom remind me very much of how I approach things in the darkroom, except it's got much more depth. I want to cover that just quickly. So because you had such a, a great learning curve in that in that professional darkroom, uh, can you just, uh, because there are a lot of listeners that have not had that experience of developing a, an image um, in the darkroom, what is the process? Let's just say one of your mountain images, okay? So you've mm -hmm. taken the shot and you're processing that as a print. What do you physically do to create that image um, when you're printing that with an enlarger and then placing it into the developer? Can, can you just explain that process? You you want the the analog first. The analog, yes, burning and dodging because yeah, when so, you know so, how to yeah. do that, it makes Lightroom just makes so much sense. It does. What? That's very very well said. Um, so in the darkroom, you. You, you take a negative and that negative has a range of continuous tones that are all on that grayscale from either completely clear on the negative to completely dense and opaque. And then you're putting it in the enlarger and there's light that's going to emit down either a cold light or a bulb. And, and what you're going to do is you try and translate that down to the print. And if you're lucky enough to have exposed it perfect, it'll give you a perfect print, but that's never going to happen <laughs> which is like so, so you can so you can um the the negative is like your raw file and when you look like at the, the raw, raw file as a raw the information is all there in the raw file as it is in the negative but you're not going to get it in one hit there's more that you need to do so you've got your right you've got your image on the enlarger um and you're um projecting that onto a sheet of photographic paper 
What do you do in the dark room to uh, bring out the details in the highlights and uh, in, in the shadows? How do you manipulate that? Okay. So do you want me to tell you this and then kind of give you the corresponding to Lightroom at the same time or do one then the other? Uh, we'll do one <laughs> and then the other. Because if you can just, if, okay. if you explain the, the, sure. the dark room, then it's, it's easy to make the leap in, in, in actual in okay. Lightroom. So the, think about that paper as your monitor, right? And you're looking at your raw file on your monitor, but now I'm looking at a, a reversed image on the paper, yep. right? So I've got that negative. It's projecting down to the, um, it's projecting down to the paper. And I can see the, the tonal ranges in that negative on the paper. I will do a step graded test print where I'll take a board and I'll, and I'll move it one inch, two inches, three inches, four inches, five inches, six inches, and I'll hit the timer for 10, 20, 30, 40, but just keeping hitting the 10 seconds so the first one gets the most exposure all the way down to the last one where I pull it off. It only gets 10 seconds, and that exposes a paper. I'll put that in developer. I'll know the kind of developer I want for the paper I'm using or the kinds of paper. There's different kinds of papers, yeah. tones, contrast, all this stuff. I'll put that in developer. I'll take it all the way through. Then I have to, I'll have a wet image, but I have to dry it down to really know what it's going to dry like. Yeah. So then I'll do a test print and I'll do one on the exposure that I picked that I think is about perfect. And I'll run that whole negative like that. And then it'll come up and I'll see, well, the highlights are not, you know, dense enough. The shadows are too dark. I need to open those up. So then I'll take boards and I have different variety of boards with holes cut in them so that I can hold light back and then let the light project through the holes and I will burn certain areas. I'll burn the corners down so that, you know, the eye doesn't travel out of the frame of the print, you know, so you get, you know, you know a white spot on the edge of a frame and your eye just goes right out of it. Yeah. And then I will take and I will create a, you know, from a hanger, a wire hanger and put different size paddles in there, round objects, oblong objects, square objects, whatever yeah. I'm trying to dodge. And as that light's going, I will dodge that. And then I will take that print, I will print it through the developer, I will mark it up, then I'll get a pen and I'll start circling different things and I'll be like, plus 10 seconds here, plus yeah. five here, minus yeah. six here, you know. And that is like, almost like creating your mask in, in yeah, Illustrator exactly. or, or Photoshop and Lightroom, right? And then it dries down and then, you know, you go through your whole, um, you know, framing and printing and signing and, you know, certificates and all that stuff. And that's, that's exactly how Lightroom was developed based on printing an image in, in a dark room. And so you, you take that raw file and what you do, the first thing you do when you've got an image in Lightroom is you play with the sliders. You go, all right, let's take the exposure all the way down and let's see what I've got in this image. And that's the, similar to doing that step test that you did. You want to see how much information there is in the <coughs> highlights and uh, how much you've got in the shadows. And so you move all the sliders around and then you know uh, where you can take that image. And then it's burning and dodging. So a lot of people see these beautiful 
landscape images and um, wonder why theirs don't look that way. There, there needs to be a little bit of manipulating, uh, burning and dodging to to create oh, that image um, that's in your mind's eye. So um, you have uh, a heap of fantastic tutorials where you do from start to finish, right? With your with your um, prints, so that there there is a lot of stuff. Uh, on your YouTube channel. Um, but I think the best place to find all your stuff is at jackcurranphotography.com. So it's C-U-R-R-A-N photography.com. Jack spelt the yep. traditional yep. way. Um, and then there's links to your YouTube from there. And you've got yeah, tutorials. Yeah, there's links to my YouTube. You've got, yep. you've got books. You've got a, 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 like a, some free PDFs. And you, you also do uh, workshops. Is that right? I do. And I have a Mastery of Light series where those videos, there's a new one coming out. There's one kind of there now on really in-depth work where the YouTubes are a little bit shorter, mm. um, more, you know, this this other one is detailed step-by-step. Step, and then I have a new one coming out that'll be about three hours long. Yeah, fantastic. And it's great to watch. It's 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 so um, good to see the the raw file and then watch how you uh, bring it to life and right. uh, bring out the the and and you think wow I wouldn't think to do that that's uh, that's so interesting this is uh this has been amazing Jack it's like um, <laughs> uh, it's been a masterclass in uh, landscape photography <laughs> I, I really uh, well, do appreciate your time thanks is there anything uh, that I haven't mentioned yet about no or... no no. No, no, I'm on Facebook and Instagram just under the same, you know, yep. moniker, so not a big deal. But um, I really enjoyed our conversation, Gina. Thank you so much for your time, and, um, you know, I'll uh, look forward to uh, seeing more of your work. I do appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. And, and, and think about those portraitures while you're out in that landscape. Oh, that, that, it was such a game changer. Thank you so much. That's exactly how I'm going to light my uh, landscapes from now on. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> Great. See you, Gina. There we go. Some pearls of wisdom from Jack Current, such an incredible landscape photographer. If you want to check out his website, it's jackcurrenphotography.com. That's Jack, spelt the regular way. Curran is C-U-R-R-A-N photography.com and then instagram is jack curran photography so definitely check him out all right so what are you doing in the coming week gina oh my god um i've got a uh lifestyle shoot coming up and some telly to do so it's a busy week so and then hopefully uh both indoors because it's freezing at the moment i know oh, our, yeah. our um, northern hemisphere listeners are going to be going that's not cold, but for us, it, it's cold. And even you, you guys have been getting a bit of um, yes. chilly weather up in Sydney too, haven't you? Although I have to say, I don't know if you saw maybe a few weeks ago, there was a movement, uh, you know, by, um, by Australian tradies when it was a particularly cold day, then they were trying to propose that there was a law to be made or some regulations or guidelines to be made that they didn't have to work after the temperature dropped below a certain number of degrees. And basically, tradies from around the world, Alaska, Canada, 
London, Paris, everywhere basically around the world because we have very temperate weather in Australia and even in the colder areas. And so tradies from around the world just took the piss. That's hilarious. <laughs> and basically there were all these memes about how soft Australian tradies were because they work in minus 38 degrees. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Yeah, so I'll just be quiet now. And um, no, I love embrace the the mild climate that I'm going to be working in. And I don't no, yeah. I'll be going out in short sleeves totally. And uh, yeah, love it, love it, love it. Let me lower my voice. Love it. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Where do we find you online, Gina? I'm at ginamilitia.com. That's G-I-N-A-M-I-L-I-C-I-A. I'm on all social media at Gina Militia. I'm also in the So You Want to Be a Photographer podcast community. So you can check that out there. Lots of photographers from all over the world. And if you want to connect with me in person uh, and you want to take your photography to the next level, then consider joining the goal community. So that's at ginamilitia.com and click on join the community what about you val you can find me at valerie koo that's k-h-o-o on twitter and instagram and over at valeriekoo.com thanks for listening everyone and we look forward to chatting to you again next time thanks guys thanks for listening to so you want to be a photographer for more information free resources and gina's regular newsletter on everything you need to know to become a successful photographer visit GinaMilitia.com.